So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. It's March 29th, 1974, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was today in history in 1974 that a group of Chinese farmers in the Linton district began to dig a well. And had they dug this well just a little further across, they probably would have ended up with a well. But as it happened, (laughs) they stumbled upon one of the most stunning archaeological finds of the 20th century. Thousands of ceramic warriors that have become known to the world as the Terracotta Army. Yeah, and in a lot of reports, they say these farmers had decided to go out and dig a well because, you know, it was a dry spell and the crops needed it. But this was still Mao's China, and it was actually their commune leader who ordered them to go out and dig a well. So it was the six Yang brothers and their neighbour, Wang Puji. And it was 41-year-old Jifa Yang who first came across a piece of terracotta torso. He initially thought that it could be from an old Mm. kiln. So the the farmers all decided to keep their eyes peeled for any old jars they could use. To be fair, why would you think? I know what that's (laughs) going to be. 8,000 life-size pottery (laughs) figures paying tribute to a dead emperor. (laughs) Apparently, for generations, there had been rumours in the area of mysterious fragments of terracotta figures turning up in the fields. But this was the first significant large find. And so locals from the village came out to watch them digging up these pieces. But apparently a lot of the elders were creeped out and basically urged them to just leave the pieces where they were. They thought it would be bad luck for them to be disturbed. But Jifa instead loaded all the finds onto a couple of carts and he took it to the local Cultural Relics Bureau. But where he didn't take it was to any journalists because they didn't want the Communist Party to scrap what they had, uh, you know, in some kind of cover-up. An unfounded fear, as it turned out. And that explains why it took quite a long time for a qualified archaeologist to turn up, during which time some of the farmers had already sold some of the bronze that they found down there. <laughs> yeah, so the archaeologist who turned up was Zhao Kangmin, and he had actually uh, been involved with the site a decade earlier when he had personally uncovered three kneeling crossbowmen. So when Zhao got alerted to this latest find, he said that he and a colleague got on their bikes, and because we were so excited, he said, we rode on our bicycles so fast it felt as if we were flying. <laughs> but as you say, Ollie, they, they were really worried about what the cultural revolution was going to make of this and whether the whole thing was just going to be destroyed. Because it it really harks back to old China, right? So if your political movement is not about doing that, you can see that this could be a threat. So so they then didn't tell anyone, but a local journalist got wind of it and against the wishes of the archaeological team, published... But when the authorities found out about it, they authorised the proper excavation of the site. And within a few months, more than 500 warriors had been unearthed. Yeah, and what happened almost immediately was that the villagers were told they had to get out of the area. So Jifa Yang became quite unpopular with his neighbours. They all had to go to the neighbouring village. And they didn't get much money out of it either. Officials awarded the Yangs and their neighbour Wang 30 yuan each for the discovery, which was three years' salary for a peasant at the time. However, they had to hand it all 
all over to their collective farming unit and they, the men themselves received only a fraction. Yang did okay in the end. He made a lifelong career out of the discovery by getting a job signing books and autographs in the museum that was built on the site, including to Bill Clinton. You know, he wrote an autograph for Bill Clinton, despite the fact that his brother, Kwan Yi, staked a rival claim <laughs> as the true discoverer. So for decades, these two brothers both worked in the museum shop, both signing autographs as the discoverer of the it Terracotta must be said, actually, a lot of people stood outside the site claiming to be one of the farmers who worked on the discovery. And, <laughs> uh, and there's even now warnings in guidebooks saying that if anyone approaches you saying that they can give you their personal tour of how they found this or that, basically don't believe them. So why was the emperor buried surrounded by these thousands of terracotta warriors? Well, in ancient China, when nobles died, they would historically kill off their servants and bury them with them to take to the afterlife. And that got increasingly unpopular because, I guess, for the obvious reasons. And so <laughs> Qin Shi Huang's solution to this problem was that instead of being buried with loads and loads of people who had served him, in, he substituted these terracotta figures. Although if you're thinking that was good of him and a bit less manslaughtery, do bear in mind that 700,000 people had to work on this tomb whilst he was yeah. alive, which took 36 years. So they may not have literally given their lives as in they had to kill themselves, but they did give their lives to build his yeah. tomb. Well, well, and some of them did give their lives, yeah, according to most... a chronicler of the era. <laughs> yeah. So there's this whole thing about even if archaeologists could go into the main tomb, it's apparently laden with booby traps like mechanical crossbows, proper Indiana Jones stuff. Yeah. But a chronicle of the time claims that the workmen who worked on the booby traps were sealed inside to prevent them revealing the wow. details. <laughs> um, so, but Qin Shi Huang himself had actually ascended to the throne at around the age of 13 and got going on this project very, very early in his reign. Um, his kingdom was celebrated for its horsemen and it sat on the margins of what was then civilization and was regarded by its easterly rivals, you know, the rest of China, as this kind of semi-savage wasteland. So the Qin Emperor was actually more complex than this reputation in that he did actually manage to do a lot of uh, administrative things that were ahead of their times, but he was also a conqueror and is really regarded as the first emperor to unite the kingdom of China. I mean, if anyone should be allowed to conscript 700,000 people into slavery and maybe <laughs> seal some of them so to die in the tomb, yeah. I would say that, you know, Chin makes a pretty good case for it. Not only did he unify these warring kingdoms, he was also not the mastermind of the Great Wall exactly. There was already uh, a, a well-established tradition of building walls. It was his idea to be like, why don't we link up the walls and make one giant wall? He also introduced a standardised Chinese writing system, a centralised currency, all this before he died in 210 BC. So, you know, if anyone's going to get the honour, I think you know, he's a pretty good candidate. <laughs> so these warriors then, have you ever seen them with your own eyes no, in person? Love no. to. I have. Wow. Oh. Nice. And they're, they're not in China. I saw them in the British Museum, which is obviously a smaller sample. But the thing is, even though I'd heard in advance that they were life-size, mm. seeing them at six feet tall still somehow surprised yeah. me. <laughs> I just sort of somehow imagine them to be, I know their lives is probably four foot. No, six foot tall. Like they're as tall as me. I know what you mean. Even seeing footage of the museum where they're displayed, which is, you know, within the pits that they were found in, it's just vast. Like the scale of the individual statues is life size, as you say, but then there's thousands of them and it's this in it's this huge hangar. It looks like a huge train station, the biggest train station you've ever been to, but it was this ancient site. 
yeah, and they're striking in their diversity as well, the diversity of the figures. I mean, it makes sense that this was kind of an evolution of a practice of actually, you know, making human sacrifices because they are made to look like individual mm. humans. People who've studied them have ascertained that there are basically 10 different basic face styles, including different types of facial hair. And then each type of soldier has their own different uniform. You know, there are charioteers, there are archers, infantry, officers, and personal variations within those uniforms mm. as well. And what's amazing about that is that although hand-finishing thousands of soldiers feels labour-intensive, as we've discussed, labour was one of the things the emperor had to hand, what's amazing about the process is that there was a process. They were mass-produced and then hand-finished which feels very modern. I mean, it reminds me of our Cabbage Patch Dolls episode yeah. did last year. It's the same as it. Everyone's different. Everyone's an individual, but actually there's an industrial process And also hand-painted. You know, one of the things that we don't associate with them is that they were very, very colourful at the time. They were bright, vibrant, like rainbow-looking characters before, you know, the ravages of time actually changed that and they'd look much more like just <laughs> basic terracotta these days. You can also tell what rank they're all supposed to represent by looking at them. So there are senior officers, there are light Lightly armed troops, there are archers, there are heavy infantrymen, there are even bureaucrats there. Um, by the kind of weapons they would have originally been holding, most of which were seized by looters at yeah. some point, but they would have been real bronze weapons. But also by like their hairstyles and stuff, you can tell what rank they would have been in the army. And the fact that they are in such a delicate condition makes it all the more remarkable that there have been international exhibits of the terracotta warriors. I mean, mm. as you mentioned, Ollie, they came to the British Museum in 2007, and that caused a real sensation. It was the biggest splash since the Tutankhamun exhibit in 1972. It drew a record 6 million viewers in one year and a record for a single day at the British Museum. On Chinese New Year, 35,000 visitors came to the British Museum, which actually forced them, I think for the first time in their history, to close the gates. You know, one of their thumbs was stolen in Philadelphia. It's just a joke. This feels like a joke. (laughs) (laughs) So in 2018, they were on tour in the US, some of them, the figures, when 24-year-old Michael Rahana was attending an ugly sweater party at the Franklin Mm -hmm. Institute. (laughs) Christmas time. Uh, And he made his way drunkenly into the Terracotta Warriors exhibit, which was closed, took a picture of himself, like a selfie, with one of the warriors, uh, then allegedly put his hand on the left hand of the statue and broke it, pocketed it and left. Uh, And he later admitted to the FBI that he'd kept the thumb in a desk drawer. Um, But then this question of what's it worth? Because, you know, if you... okay, so you've stolen this apparently priceless artefact, but you can put a price on it because... Um, The UN valued the figures at $350,000 each when they were first displayed in 1985. (laughs) Uh, Lloyds of London insured the cavalryman at $4.5 million before it was shipped for exhibit to the Franklin Institute. So it's somewhere between those two figures. How much does a thumb... No, it doesn't work like that, Ollie. You break it, you buy the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow got out of control and one thing leads to another and sooner or later someone's taking someone's tumour out of their <laughs> Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts. Part of the ACAST Creator Network.